Hello, and welcome to a special episode of The War on Cars. I'm Doug Gordon. So, on the podcast, we always try to strike a delicate balance between serious coverage of the issues and humor, which can be a little tricky. A lot of what we discuss is literally a matter of life and death, but at the same time, a lot of what we talk about, and a lot of things you probably hear when you're out there fighting the war on cars, is pretty absurd, right? Like, why do people scoff at someone who gets around on a 25 or 30 pound bicycle powered by whatever you had for breakfast that morning, but think it's totally rational and reasonable for millions of people to get around in a 5,000 pound metal box powered by dinosaur juice, right? It makes no sense. Or why do people claim that a bike lane will ruin the historic character of a neighborhood when their streets are lined with late model cars and SUVs? And I think sometimes the only reaction you can have is just to laugh. So that brings me to our guest, Adam Conover. Adam is a stand-up comedian and the creator and host of Adam Ruins Everything on True TV. Now, if you're wondering what a comedian has to do with a war on cars, then you really ought to watch Adam's show. Um, In Adam Ruins Everything, he deconstructs conventional wisdom about all kinds of topics, ranging from weddings, the airline industry, environmentalism, and yes, cars. And one of the missions of his show, and something you're going to hear in the interview with Adam, is this idea of helping people see information and even stuff they might take for granted in a whole new light. So first of all, pause, maybe go watch the episode Adam Ruins Cars. It's really great. Um, In one memorable segment that kind of ricocheted around the internet in 2015, Adam and his crew gave a great history on the origins of the word jaywalking. They're killing us out there. Well, technically, we're killing them, Bill. Ooh, good point. We gotta fight this thing. I got it. We'll tell them the streets are for cars only, and if a car kills you, it's your own fault. And we'll give the folks that walk in the street a really humiliating nickname. What about Irish walkers? Now, that's pretty cruel, but we can do better. I got it. Jaywalkers. Oh, you disgust me. And I love it. It doesn't mean much to us now, but back then, Jay was a really offensive slur. It basically meant dirty hillbilly, which makes this really messed up. Like, what if today we called them walkers, or walkers, or even walkers? Adam is also the host of a new podcast called Factually with Adam Conover. His second episode of that podcast is all about transportation. It's fantastic. You should go listen to it. In my interview with Adam, we talked about all kinds of stuff, taking the bus in LA and lessons advocates can learn from his approach to comedy and presenting information, and a whole lot more. My hope is that when you listen, you're going to hear things in there that can help you when you're out there deconstructing car culture, trying to make your hometown better for people who aren't in those dinosaur juice-powered metal boxes. So enjoy. Adam Conover, welcome to The War on Cars. Hey, thank you so much for having me. So, um... I, I kind of wanted you to start perhaps by giving me a little open-ended spiel on why you hate cars. I, I've heard <laughs> I've heard your podcast, Factually. You have a great episode on transportation. And uh, you've certainly in your television show deconstructed cars and car culture a yeah. little bit. So um, you have the floor. I think it started for me when I moved to Los Angeles from New York. Um, I lived in New York for about 10 years. And prior to that, you know, I was just in college. I didn't have a car in college. Um, and I moved to New York and I found that public transportation really opened up the world to me um, because, 
you know, I, I actually the truth was uh, I didn't have a driver's license up until a couple years ago because I was uh, I have very bad eyesight and I was always very nervous behind the wheel. I now can drive, but I don't, you know particularly often um and i didn't drive in college uh and when i moved to new york i felt oh my gosh this like the the world is open to me now i can go anywhere in this city right and uh not only that i can do it for you know i think at the time it was a buck 75 um yeah it was pretty cheap yeah um and uh, i just sort of fell in love with that mode of travel when i moved to los angeles i had to start driving um and I just the difference was so apparent of how immediately worse it was right off the bat. I mean, first of all, what I think a lot of people don't consider when you're driving, something that makes it fundamentally more inconvenient is that if you're driving around all day, you have to take care of the car all day long, right? You leave your house, you go to your office, um, you have to find a place to park your car. So maybe you have dedicated parking, you have to drive it through the parking lot, right? But then say your friend says, hey, we're all gonna go out for happy hour after work, Uh, you wanna join. All right, well, sure, I wanna go, except I can't drive home from the happy hour because I plan to drink at the happy hour, so what am I gonna do with my car? I could take a lift home, right, from the happy hour, except then where have I left my car? Am I leaving it at the office? Am I leaving it, like, on the street? Or am I gonna drive it home and then take the lift to the bar, right? And I used to do that on occasion. I would, like, you know, I I was uh, working in West Hollywood and living on the east side, so i drive all the way back to the east side, get home, uh, you know, change uh, after you know because I was had been sitting in traffic for an hour so I was covered in like butt sweat and then uh, (laughs) take a lift to the place that all my friends are going and then take another lift home Um, and uh, I was like this is just fundamentally worse right Um, but then if you look around at the city of Los Angeles you look around at any uh, other car-based city it's so apparent that the way we've designed our cities is for automobiles, not for people, right? The scale of everything is so much larger. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, again, in a sort of East Coast city that was laid out before the advent of the automobile, not just New York, but, you know, uh, Boston, uh, you know, lots of areas of Chicago are like this as well. Sort of any city that has a large city center that was designed before the car was invented, right? Or popularized at any rate. Um, Sure. It'll be very dense and, you know, naturally walk Right. Like every block will have, you know, five or six businesses, um, you know, that you can uh, walk to over the over the span of a block. Um, Whereas cities that were largely built after the uh, advent of the car, like, you know, most of our Western cities, um, even, you know, after you get out of your car, you're still incredibly far from anywhere that you might want to go. You know what I mean? You're like, yeah. uh, you have to walk huge, huge distances. Um, you know, say say you park two blocks away. Well, the, those blocks, you know, are going to be super spread out. No trees, no uh, businesses, no homes on either side. You're sort of like walking. You, you always feel like you're walking down the side of the highway, right? Yeah. <laughs> Whenever you're in Los Angeles. Um, even walking down Sunset might as well be a... Which which is, you know, a, a sort of major sort of, uh, you know, city center thoroughfare, uh, you often feel like you might as well be walking on the side of a freeway. It's funny. One thing I was thinking about, I've been to Los Angeles many times for work, and there's also the social aspect of traveling with friends when you go out for the night. So, you know, in New York, if I go out with five or six friends and we're at one bar and we decide we're done there and we want to go 
get a bite to eat or go to another bar altogether, we just all hop on the subway or maybe we share a cab and we go. But in Los Angeles, when I've done that with a group of friends, it's like six of us arrived separately in our own vehicles. (laughs) And now we all have to move those vehicles to another location. And then you lose just forget about the practical reality of finding storage for your vehicles when you show up somewhere else, you lose the social aspect of the night. You right. you don't travel together. So that to me was another kind it's of the, it's stark the joke difference. From, it's the joke from Swingers. Do you remember that? Uh, it's just like a, a shot in, it always stuck with me. It's actually the most memorable thing to me about the entire movie Swingers is, you know, all the guys are hanging out and they decide to go to a party and they all get in their cars and there's a couple shots of like, you know, their five cars all winding down the oh, street right, yeah. behind yeah. each other because that's how they that's how they went together. Um, yeah, and you know, look, I'm a, I'm a stand-up comic um, and so I spent my time in New York you know, going bouncing from open mic to open mic, um, you know, or show to show. And something that that comics say, I was just having a con- this conversation this weekend is uh, the sort of open mic stand up comedy scene is so much worse in Los Angeles. Um, yeah. There's less open mics. There's uh, it's harder to get to them. The quality of them is less good. And I think a huge part of the reason for that is just the design of the city and the car culture, because um, in New York, you know, it's typical to do exactly what you said. Comics will hit three mics in a night and they'll go from mic to mic together. You know, you'll, you'll start your night at one open mic and then you'll say, hey, where are you going next? Oh, we're going to go hit this, this place. There's one at 8 p.m. All right, let's hop on the subway together and go. Or, you know, often it's just walking distance. You know, it's OK. It's only, you know, three quarters of a mile away. Let's just hoof it. So you um, on your podcast, you described yourself as a bus boy, which is something <laughs> I <laughs> something I can relate to because as much as New York City is really kind of symbolized by the subway. I love the bus. I take the bus all the time. Um, I know it's a little different in Los Angeles and and there's a little bit more of a stigma perhaps associated with the bus. We talked about this a little bit on our bus episode, Um, but is that changing at all in Los Angeles? Are are more people getting around by bus? I mean, are more people coming around to this idea, your perspective that getting around by public transit is the way to go? I wish I could say the answer was yes. Uh, but metro ridership has gone down in the last year or two. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of different reasons for that. I'm not a city planner, but, you know, I've heard discussion that, uh, you know, first of all, we know that ride sharing is reducing the amount that people use public transit. Uh, right. That's the story. That's the story here is that Uber and Lyft are just cannibalizing ridership, yeah. increasing, uh, increasing traffic, which leads to people abandoning the bus and it's this really vicious, vicious cycle. cycle. It's exactly what I was going to say. Um, and in response, unfortunately, Metro uh, has in their recent budget, they're cutting service um, to uh, just, you know, they're reducing headways by, you know, a couple minutes. Right. But that's still a service cut. Um, so, you know, on the other hand, there are, uh, signs for optimism. The city is still building subways, which is, you know, new subway lines, which is vanishingly rare in America. Right. And it's taken them a long time, but it's not taken nearly as long as the second Avenue subway is in New York. So, uh, you know, we, we are building them and people like them once they're built, you know, there's a, there's a, a line that goes all the way out to Santa Monica now, um, from, uh, downtown LA and, and people are big fans of that. Uh, so, 
you know, I, I hope that I hope that people are are coming on board. And it's and it's not every agency, uh, by the way, that's cutting service. The LADOT, which runs its own fleet of buses, is increasing service um, at the same time. So, uh, you know, but uh, yeah, I, I wish I wish I could say that it was a, a big sea change here. Um, you know, I, I personally in the last couple of years. So my story is I moved to Los Angeles. Uh, I started driving when I got here. I drove for three years uh, everywhere that I had to go. Um, you know, my uh, my first experience driving was a 45 minute commute down uh, Sunset and Fountain from the east side to West Hollywood, which was not fun, but really gave me a uh, crash course in what driving in Los Angeles is like. And I adjusted to it. You know, I, I was like, all right, I got an audible subscription. I'll start, uh, you know, plowing through some long biographies um, right. on my commute every day. And and uh, I sort of made my peace with it. Um, and then I reached a point where I was just I realized how unhappy it was making me. You know, I, I had this experience where I actually had a very short commute one year because uh, Adam Ruins Everything's production office was only like a 15 minute drive away from where I lived, um, which is very nice and short, uh, kind of a dream commute. But then I was coming home during rush hour and there was a bicyclist in front of me, you know, in the lane in front of me uh, and there wasn't any shoulder or bike lane. And so I was going slowly because I wasn't, you know, I didn't want to hit the person and I, uh, you know, uh, was trying to give them a wide berth. People behind me started honking, so I tried to get in the left lane. Someone uh, on in the left lane was like coming up behind me really fast. They honked at me. I swerved back in the right lane. You know, my heart was pounding, and I was like, I don't need this shit. <laughs> you know, like I'm just. Yeah. I've had a long day. My heart is pounding. Just taking my 15 minute drive back to my home, and I'm not happy about this. Right. So, I uh, that night looked up to see is you know, how could I get to my office without driving? And it turned out that there was a dash bus, which is the LADOT's sort of neighborhood buses um, mm -hmm. uh, that went from, you know, it was like a 10 minute walk from my house to this bus stop. And that bus went almost directly to my office. And I had been going to that office for a full year. I had just never looked up to see whether there was a bus that went there or not. Um, and it turned out that the bus ride, you know, took about, took about you know, between half an hour and 45 minutes compared to a 15 minute drive. Um, but I was sitting on a nice little bus, uh, it cost 35 cents is how, is how much the LA DOT buses That's cost. That's incredible. 35 cents. If you buy the, if you buy the tap card, you know, if you, if you pay with coins, right. it's 50, but, um, 35 cents. Um, and these are wonderful little buses. The, uh, the, I started to learn who the drivers were. I learned the driver's names. I saw them greet people getting on and off the bus. Cause you know, again, these are neighborhood community buses. These are not the big, right. you know, the big Metro lines. Um, and I was immediately so much happier. I was like, I can read, I can read a magazine, right? I can sort of like, uh, like look around the community and see what's going on. You know, I, I started to become, you know, when you're traveling that way, you start to become more familiar with like the shape of the neighborhood with the sort of buildings that are in the area, you know? And yeah, I just, absolutely. and I just felt so much more like myself. Right. And that, and that's where I say, I, I don't, you know, tell other people they have to travel this way. This is what makes me happiest. Right. Um, yeah. But uh, but I do try to encourage other people. Hey, just if you just every once in a while, oh, pop open Google Maps, hit that directions button and then hit transit and see what it says. And there might be a bus that goes directly to where you're trying to go or a train. Right. In which case you can take it and then maybe you take a lift home. Right. But um, at least, you know, one of those commutes uh, you'll have, you know, you'll have explored that option. And the beautiful thing about that is. 
once you make the choice to leave your house and not drive, you know, for the very first trip, you're no longer babysitting the car. Right. So if you take. Yeah, the, that's the best thing about it. Yeah. Um, and so all of these sort of travel options open up to you. And so that started happening immediately. And I was like, this is incredible because suddenly I am able to be much more improvisational with the way I move around the city. Um, I'm able to, you know, I actually had that experience where I would. You know, I'd take the bus to a to a stand up show and then I'd be chatting with another comic. I'd say, oh, I'm going to I'm heading home. And they say, oh, I'm going to the east side. You want me to give you a lift? Oh, yeah, sure. And then I'm taking a ride with, you know, uh, with a colleague. Right. Who I didn't expect to and getting to know them a little bit better. Right. Then you have that social experience that we were talking about, too. Exactly. Exactly. Now. So what I did after that was. Uh, the next time my uh, partner and I moved, we said, uh, I said to her, hey, look, my number one priority is that I want to live somewhere that has good access to transit. Right. So uh, and and that was took a lot of doing, uh, <laughs> but it is sort of excluded a lot of places. Um, but, you know, we found a place in Los Feliz that um, is walking distance from the red line and from a couple of bus lines that I can use to go right up and down sort of the main thoroughfares. It's basically the equivalent of like it's as close as you can get in L.A. to like living on Union Square <laughs> in New York. Right. In terms of that, there's a couple different directions I can go, you know, within not too far of a walk from my home. And here's the thing. It's not a cheap area that I live in. You know what I mean? We both run our own TV shows. So uh, we're very fortunate to be able to live where we do. And so there's a certain, I mean, it's not the most expensive neighborhood in town. We're not living in Beverly Hills, but you know, um, there is a certain perversity to the fact that, you know, we're, we're paying what for some people is a lot for housing in order for me to be able to uh, save money on transit. Right. And so there's a, a, you know, that's why I don't tell anybody else, Hey, you should be taking transit because whether or not you can so much depends on the other conditions of your life that you don't have control over. So I wanted to talk a little bit about comedy because it's an interest of mine. Like I've been a comedy nerd for, you know, ever since I was a kid. Um, I actually, Studied improv at the UCB, the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater here in New York for a good long while. And I found that as a television writer, as a producer, of course, it really helped me, you know, face that blank page. It helped me solve story problems. It helped me with all kinds of stuff. But I've actually found that as an advocate, it's in a weird way, uh, you know, an advocate for safe streets and for bicycling. It's helped me even more. Um, I want to talk about your perspective um, because you know, you are stand-up, you've performed sketch comedy. Um, how do you feel that your comedy training and, and that experience has contributed to your unique point of view? And also, you have a unique point of view that just is innate and part of your childhood and part of your growing up. How does that contribute to your comedy as well and how it comes out on Adam Ruins Everything? Well, I think that the fact that I do comedy is the only reason anybody listens to anything I have to say or should. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean... You know, my perspective is somewhat unique, right? I take the bus in Los Angeles. That's about it, <laughs> you know, at least on this issue, right? Um, and plenty of people share my opinion. I mean, I think we're pretty simpatico on these issues. Uh, right. But the fact that I tell them through comedy is what makes them interesting to people. That, you know, you can use comedy to make these topics livelier and go down easier and, uh, you know, attract people to them. It's my belief that, uh, you know, everybody wants to learn. Uh, Everybody is interested in these topics. 
But people don't often have the time or the inclination to go seek them out, right? Uh, I, right. you know, I've I've got time on my hands, so you know, I read a lot of articles and I uh, read a lot of nonfiction and stuff like that. A lot of people don't have that luxury. So, uh, but at the same time, they're still curious, right? Mm -hmm. They still uh, want to know the truth about the world around them. They still have the same baseline anger about the way that their city or society is organized that I do. And so if I can present them that information in a way that is funny and compelling and they get the whole thing in half an hour uh, and they get to laugh uh, and they can, you know, in, you know, get it uh, at 10 p.m. after they put the kids down before they go to sleep themselves, uh, then they'll then they'll come and get it right. So uh, to me, it's just a, a good means of communication. Um, yeah, and and there is something uniquely powerful about comedy as a way to get this kind of information across. Uh, something that really influenced me is you know, I uh, one of the first comedians I really gravitated towards was George Carlin. Uh, oh yeah, sure, and. In his book, in his in the his last book, or it might have even been posthumous. I believe it's called Last Words. It's a memoir. Uh, he says, and I'm going to paraphrase, um, that when people are laughing, that's when they're most purely themselves and they're unselfconscious when they're laughing at something, and that's where you can plant the seed of a new idea as they're laughing, and then later it'll grow. In their in their minds and hearts, um, and that I, mean, really I think the other thing really with, with Carlin. Me. Well, sorry, I think the other thing with Carlin too is that like so much of his best material is literally just picking apart like the words that we use to sure. describe things, like his very famous football versus baseball routine. I, I think about like so many of the quote unquote jokes in that are not like go for a punchline; they're literally just a stating of facts. Like yes. here's the language we use to describe football. Here's yes. the language we use to describe baseball. And I find that it's interesting that you said that you mentioned Carlin because I feel like in your show, you guys always strike a very delicate balance between going for the joke and just laying out the facts as they stand and right. letting them and letting them land as almost like a sort of this this fact by itself is absurd. Uh, we don't need to comment on it other than to just lay it out. And is there, what's the process like for pitching jokes or writing material on your show with your staff? <laughs> well, we are a show that, you know, we're a comedy show, but the facts always come first on our show. Mm -hmm. And specifically the jokes that we tell are almost never non sequitur or tangential jokes. They're almost always jokes that support the point that's being made. Right. And that, mm -hmm. that are off of the fact that, that throw the fact into sharper relief rather than being about, you know, something else happening in the scene, which is unusual, you know, um, for instance, a 30 rock joke, the way, the way those jokes are written is they'll often like, uh, bring up a whole new idea that's unrelated to the scene, do a little double backflip of a joke around it, and then go back to talking about whatever the actual issue is, you know? And we never right. do that. We never do a joke for joke's sakes. Our jokes always just emphasize what the uh, what the facts of the matter are, um, which is a little unusual for comedy writers. You know, they, they have to get in our rhythm with it. Um, but, you know, I mean, uh, apart from that, we don't look that different from a regular comedy writer's room. You know, we've got a bunch of writers in a room there. We're all pitching uh, ideas for visuals and jokes, um, putting them up on a cork board. 
the ones that get a laugh in the room are the ones that tend to win. Um, we do have a research team that's the same size as our writing team, and they fact check all of our scripts, and sometimes they have to look at the script and, and say, okay, does this joke actually uh, you know, have bearing on the facts, right? Or is this joke right. going to mislead people and think it's going a little bit further than the facts are, which is always an interesting line to walk. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's basically the process. So about that line that you walk, I, you know, I think in the advocacy world, in uh, any sort of activism, humor is always a very dicey proposition. You know, jokes are so subjective and if you make the wrong one, you can get in a lot of trouble, especially in this day and age with things going viral unintentionally. Um, and like we were saying before, that sometimes just sticking to the facts or calling out how absurd something is, that's enough. You don't have to go much farther than that. Like, how are there times when you said, no, 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 that joke goes too far. We're better off just sticking to the, just the straight up fact here. Uh yeah, I mean, I can't think of any off the top of my head. Uh, there are certainly times where I, I said, oh, I don't like that joke. Right, <laughs> um, right. Where, uh, you know, there there's such a thing as, I mean, writers, you know, myself included, are constantly writing bad jokes that don't work, right? That are, that are <laughs> right. well, this isn't going to be funny. This is going to be upsetting, you know? And so that's yeah. when, then we don't put that joke in. Um, right. You know, you don't uh, get a bad reaction to a joke that works. Right. So <laughs> that's so we just we just make sure that we're writing jokes that work and we talk about, you know, is this joke going to work? Are we making sure we understand all the different ways that this joke could be taken, that our meaning isn't going right. to be misunderstood, uh, et cetera, or that we're going to be giving the wrong impression, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's you know, I, I don't think that the uh the 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 thing about oh if you make the wrong joke you're going to be attacked by people this is this is not a hard problem you know right um, i mean i think it's just about being sensitive and take stepping outside of yourself and considering other points of view i think it's like as simple as that a lot yeah of the i mean times. my 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 comedic process has always been i imagine that i'm the person in the audience watching the joke yeah. will i enjoy it right will it hit me at the right moment which is that's what comedy is you're doing audience management you know to mm -hmm. to make an audience laugh this is this is just one of the fundamental facts of how comedy works if you if you're trying to make an audience laugh um then the audience needs to all have the exact thought exact same thought at the exact same time right and it and it needs yeah. to strike them as funny so that they laugh at it right um, so to do that, you need to put yourself in the position of your audience and say, okay, if I was sitting there in front of my TV or watching the performer on stage, would I laugh at that? Right. right. Um, and yes, you should imagine multiple different people, right. Uh, from different backgrounds with different life histories and different experiences. Um, and you know, say are, are, you know, are, are all those people finding this joke funny? And if they are, then great. You know, it, it's funny because I don't I don't actually think about the comedy in the show that much anymore because, uh, you know, I've been doing comedy for a long time and mm -hmm. I've gotten pretty good at it, you know, and I, I can reliably make people laugh. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, so the so the interesting part for me is making sure the information is solid, right? And that we're saying something valuable with comedy. 
Um, because after the reason I got into Adam Ruins everything in the first place is after you do comedy for long enough, you know, making people laugh becomes a solved problem. You know how to do it. And the harder thing becomes, <laughs> becomes making people give a shit and making them remember you and doing, yeah. doing comedy that people care about. Um, and then after, you know, once you found your topic in that way, well, writing the jokes becomes a math exercise, right? right um, right. so our, you know, our writing process is really, okay, what do we want to say? What's our argument that we're making? Uh, what are the facts we're going to use to bring that case? Right. Okay. Now time to write the jokes <laughs> and writing the yeah. jokes is like, all right, now we just got to spend our time in the fields, you know, in the joke mines, uh, God, banging it's, those it's out, but we'll, so, we'll write them, you know, it's, it's amazing what you're saying because I'm listening to it thinking like, that's exactly the same process that, uh, I go through as a, as an advocate, I sit down if I'm writing a, you know, an opinion piece for the, for the news or, uh, a blog post or thinking about something I'm going to say to an, an audience of activists elsewhere outside of New York is I said like, okay, what are the facts that I need to know to explain this? Who am I speaking to? What do I want them to take away from it? And, and at that point, I, I've done kind of 90% of the job and the rest comes somewhat easily. I mean, you know, you have to put a lot of work into a lot of time, but it's, it's amazing the overlap you're talking about here. I, I was thinking about, um, Part of what I really like about your show, that as much as it's called Adam Ruins Everything, there, there's a lot of joy and freedom that comes when you know things, you know, when you're informed, um, when, you know, you think about parking or a car dealership and how it actually really works, um, that you can go into situations with just a little more knowledge. Um, I was wondering if you have advice for advocates, people out there trying to change their cities for the better, how... I'll give a good example. A lot of times advocates will get up at community meetings and say something like, everyone can ride a bike and you should too. Um, <laughs> and I, and I always kind of, kind of slap my forehead and I'm like, you know, come on, my, yeah. my 90, my 93 year old grandmother who lives <laughs> in a retirement home in the Bronx is not, she's probably yeah, not going to hop on a city bike to get down is, to the grocery store. Yeah. The fact is most people are not going to ride a bike and cannot right, ride a bike. Right. I, I personally, right. I mean, I, I fit the physical profile of someone who could ride a bike, right? I'm a, I'm a young man in good health. Um, and, and I don't do it because I'm frightened. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, that's a very, that's a very transparently false, uh, point of view. I'm sorry. I, I know that, I know it wasn't your point to dwell on that. I just, uh, well, I guess it's, it's more, I guess it's more like that, that point of view. I, I think it's sort of like you were saying, uh, in trying to be almost like an evangelical for the bus that you, you know, that you can't necessarily say to everyone, Hey, just take transit because there's so many things that go into the choices that people make about how they get around. But, but do you have advice for advocates? Like how can people go about uh, explaining things to people without, <laughs> without ruining things for them, without finding a sort of hostile uh, or at least like indifferent audience to those messages? Well, what I did with Adam Ruins Everything was I was just trying to duplicate the feeling I got when I learned these things for other people, right? Okay, so in Adam Ruins Cars, right? We told the story about how the the street used to be a public place where, you know, uh, you know, there were bikes and there were carriages and there were people walking to and fro and there were children playing stickball and, you know, it was a it was a public thoroughfare that anyone could be in, right? And then yeah. the uh, the car, you know, took this over. Cars started killing people. People said, "Oh, we should ban the car if they're killing people. That seems reasonable. You would probably ban something that was murdering children, right?" Um, and the car 
industry saw this as a big uh, you know, threat, so they sort of started labeling people who went into the street without uh, waiting to be told they could, jaywalkers, right? And jay was a slur mm-hmm. at the time, so it was an insult, um, and sort of made this, the city street a place where, okay, now you have to look both ways before you cross the street. You have to wait for the signal or you'll be arrested. Um, and, you know, the streets are just for cars. So now we've got this, you know, we live in this world where we're all trapped on the sidewalks and we have to, like, cross the chasm of the street whenever we're, you know, permitted by the little green man on the sign. Um, when I came across that story... I was fascinated by it. I, I, I was like, wow, this is incredible. I had no idea that this was the case. This makes me see my city differently. I want to I yeah. want to keep thinking about this. It's it's what I said I was called a delicious idea that I just wanted to roll around in my mind, you know? And mm-hmm. so when I was creating the show, I thought, well, hey, I want to tell other people that story because they'll feel the same way and then they'll want to watch my show again, <laughs> right? Uh, right? I right. was just trying to to replicate that same feeling of fascination I experienced in them uh, because that's a universal feeling. I mean, not, you know, not literally every single person on the planet is going to react the same way to that story, but I think most people will because it's a fascinating story, right? So yeah. I, I would say to those advocates, like, try to... Try to reproduce whatever brought you to that point, you know. Um, so if you have that energy for, hey, here's a program that if we do this, this is going to make, you know, when I heard about this, I thought, oh, this is going to make everyone's life better, right? Um, try yeah. to try to communicate that that excitement and that uh, uh, that energy um, in a way that's going to make other people feel the same thing. I mean, it's not it's not easy to do, but uh, you know, your audience will they're a person just like you right they have all the same drives and needs and motivations and something brought you to this point right where you have Mm -hmm. this way of thinking about things and and this message that you want to communicate so just think how do i get the people i'm speaking to to this point as well um and see them as other people right who who you can draw along in that way uh i think that's the soul of communication again is imagining yourself in their position and saying, well, this worked for me. This is what caused it to strike me as funny or interesting or revelatory or fascinating. And how do I make it seem the same way for them? I think that's just fantastic. I want to go off on one little tangent before we end. I want to talk about animated Donald Shoup. Who's this dude? This dude is Professor Donald Shoup, our foremost expert on the economics of parking. Oh, okay. Parking lots don't employ any people. They simply provide space for cars. We have expensive housing for people and free parking for cars. We have our priorities the wrong way around. And the worst part is, many cities require far too much parking, and this blights their downtowns. We're killing our own cities. It's a huge bummer. It is an honor to animate you, sir. Yeah, he writes generally about the about the cost of parking that, um, you know, the oh, uh, sorry, his famous book is uh, the high cost, cost. the high cost of free parking. And, you know, uh, the fact that people will is this has been a little while. So I hope I'm paraphrasing his his argument correctly. But, you know, if you have that experience where you drive downtown with a friend, this still happens to me in Los Angeles, drive downtown with a friend. They say, okay, let's find parking. You say, oh, well, go in that parking lot. It's only, you know, it'll it'll cost us 10 bucks. They say, no, 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 I'm going to find free parking. There's got to be a meter around here somewhere. It's a Sunday. I'm going to find <laughs> right. free parking. And then they circle the block, right, a couple of times. 
and they spend an extra 15 minutes looking for that free parking before they either find it or they give up and they go in the parking lot, right? Well, what is that causing? It's causing emissions, it's causing traffic, Right. And it's a general drag on the sort of economic livelihood of the city um, right. because there are these empty parking lots everywhere that aren't being used for any other ec economic activity. Right. We're just using all this otherwise wonderful space that could be used for people to store sleepy cars. Um, and so we thought that was a wonderful, uh, wonderful argument. And we had uh, uh, Professor Shoup on the show and we uh, it was an animated portion of the show. So we recorded his uh, recorded his voice and uh, made a little animated character for him in a in a parking lot full of cars with little sleeping caps on i loved the sleeping cars thing because i felt like it was a really great example of taking a subject that if you were to like walk into a cocktail party and be like hey let me talk about the economics of parking you know people's eyes would roll back in their heads or whatever they would maybe look for the exits but you were able to make it really interesting and very informative and really just very funny and, and sort of hit that sweet spot that Thank I you. think you were talking about. That, that, that sweet spot that you were talking about of finding people and making them receptive to this thing that you're interested in. So um, I think that's a great note to end on. Um, Adam Conover, thank you for speaking to The War on Cars. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate uh, you talking to me. Hey everyone, so that's it for my interview with Adam Conover. Please, if you haven't checked out Adam Ruins Everything on True TV, do it. A new season of the show is going to premiere in August. And definitely check out his podcast, Factually with Adam Conover. You can find links to everything in the show notes. As a reminder, don't forget to support us on Patreon. You can find a link to chip in at thewaroncars.org. This episode was produced by me with help from Avishai Artsy in Los Angeles. Additional help was also given by Josh Wilcox at the Brooklyn Podcasting Studio. Many thanks to Adam Conover for taking the time to talk with me. And thanks to everyone for listening to The War on Cars.